We are continuing a series this morning uh, through the Lord's Prayer, and most of us are familiar with that um, passage of Scripture, whether it's from Matthew, Matthew's Gospel in chapter 6 or Luke in chapter 11, and we have chosen to be out of Luke 11. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, we're going to read again from Luke chapter 11, and uh, then we're going to jump to Exodus chapter 16, because this morning we're focusing on uh, the phrase daily bread. Give us each day our daily bread. And the obvious passage to um, expand on that idea is the giving of the manna to the people of Israel in Exodus 16. We've also been reading about that in Numbers, and so it seemed appropriate. So let's read together, beginning in Luke 11, verses 1 through 3, and then skipping to Exodus 16. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread. Okay, and then from the story in Exodus chapter 16, uh, the people are wandering in the wilderness after being brought up by the mighty hand of God out of slavery in Egypt, and they've gone out into the wilderness where there is no food and water. They start to cry out to the Lord. He sends the manna from heaven, and we pick up in chapter 16, verse 14. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given to you to eat. And this is what the Lord has commanded, gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent, And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat, and Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. And morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. This is the word of the Lord. Say with me, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you just pray a short prayer with me? Father, we are not here because we are good, but because we are yours. Give us humble, teachable, obedient hearts that we might receive what you have revealed and do what you have commanded. Forgive the preacher his sins. They are many. We would see Jesus in him only, and in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, here's the thing. The Lord's Prayer is not just a prayer. It is a rubric for the whole of the Christian life. You do life through prayer. That's what we've been talking about in this series. You do life through prayer. And here are the parts of that. Knowing God as Father, seeking to hallow his name in everything you do, participating in his kingdom mission in the world, depending on him daily for everything you need, and then living a life that is graced and gracious, being forgiven and forgiving others because of the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the Christian life in a nutshell, those things. And this morning, as we are making our way through each of those statements Jesus makes teaching us to pray, we come to the praise where he says, uh, he talks about daily bread. Give us each day our daily bread. So here's my question for you to ponder as we go through this text and jump to other places in the scripture this morning. What is, what is the big rock right now in your life that you're trying to push? What is the thing? 
What's the thing that you think about or the thing that you worry about every day? It's just there every day. You wake up and it's there. You wake up in the middle of the night, it's there. At the end of the day, as you're thinking about the day, it's there. What is that daily problem that you're trying to solve, that daily need that you're hoping God will work in? You need daily strength for it or daily forgiveness for you know, that sin or daily wisdom for whatever problem you're in the middle of. Because here's my contention. There is some area in your life where you need daily bread. Every one of us, if we're honest, if we, could, if we could identify it, it would help us. Every one of us is going through something that is a daily concern like that. It might be money problems, or you might have plenty of money in the bank, and it might be sickness or physical difficulty, or it might be that you need daily strength for love in a difficult marriage, or for patience with a stubborn child, or forgiveness in a friendship where you've been deeply hurt, or faithfulness. You need daily grace and strength to just be faithful in a job that you hate. Whatever it might be, you wake up every day and you wonder where the strength is going to come from for today. And you go throughout the day and you barely make it and you go to bed at night and you think, I have no idea how I'm going to get through it tomorrow. And you wake up and you do the same thing day after day. Whatever that hard, painful part of your life is, do you believe that it is an opportunity Do you believe, in fact, that it's a gift, that it might be the very place where God is inviting you to learn how to pray? And here's the prayer that he teaches us. Do you see it? Verse 3 there in chapter 11 of Luke. Give us each day our daily bread. Now, that's different from Matthew. It's interesting. Matthew, Matthew tells us, give us today our daily bread. But here it's give us each day. So not just today, each day. Today, and then again tomorrow, and the day after that, and every day, all the days, daily bread. And so here's what we want to do. Just two things this morning as we consider that phrase. What is the lesson? Uh, What is the lesson of Jesus teaching us to pray for daily bread? What is the lesson of praying the way he teaches us here? And then secondly, how do you get the strength and the confidence to do it. How do, you, how do you become a person who has the strength, the disposition to pray for daily bread and not just make bread for yourself? Because those are the two options, okay? So first, let's talk about what the lesson is that Jesus means to teach us here. Uh, it, is a, it is a prayer for daily bread. And so the very first thing I think you could say is that the, the, the promise that Jesus makes to us and that the Bible makes to us here and elsewhere is provision, not luxury. The promise is provision, not luxury. That's an important distinction to make. Look in Exodus 16, verses 14 and beyond. It says that the manna was a fine, flake-like thing that people used to bake bread. It says they ate manna for 40 years until they came to a habitable land, verse 35. Uh, they, They were in the desert, it was an inhabitable place. It was not suitable to live in. They were not glamping, right? There was no wild game. There was no vegetation. It wasn't Texas Day Brazil out there for them while they were out there, okay? They ate bread every meal for 40 years. How long until you revolted? 
I give myself maybe two and a half days. I had the over-under for you maybe about the same. Bread, every meal for 40 years, God provided for them. There was provision but not luxury. And the implication of Jesus' teaching us to pray for daily bread is that that is the normative experience of God's people. But what is also normative is our distaste for such circumstances. Have you been surprised? I always am. Uh, in reading these Old Testament stories, as we've been reading through Numbers, have you been surprised by the calls to go back to Egypt? Isn't it fascinating? The people are wandering in the wilderness. They say, there's no food out here. It was better in Egypt. Let's go, let's go back there. Slavery, slavery's better than dependence. Pharaoh is a better master than the Lord. Enough with this. Let's go back. Now, don't be too hard on them. You should see the same inclination in yourself. It's there, I promise. It is. But here's the lesson we're meant to learn. Egypt is the place where you enjoy good things, but without God. You enjoy good things, but without God. The wilderness is where you enjoy hard things, but with God. And when Jesus says, when you pray, say this, give us each day our daily bread, he's inviting us into the wilderness with God. He's inviting us to live our lives going through the wilderness like these people with the Lord. And so in Deuteronomy, very clearly, the Lord summarizes his intent. Uh, and we read the passage as, a, as the law passage there earlier in the, in the service. Here's what God says. He says, I led you through the wilderness. I humbled you. I caused you to hunger. I caused you to hunger. I caused you to be without what you needed and then I fed you with manna to teach you that you do not live by your own making, but by every grace that I give. That is God's way. Okay? You just need to know that. That is God's way. But why? I mean, isn't that the question? Why would the Lord choose to order our days and theirs, but ours too, like that? Thomas Watson has said it like this. He said, we all live upon alms. We all live upon alms. That is not a problem to be solved. It is an existential truth, whether we acknowledge it or not. The problem is our problem solving of that truth. That's a little deep. Should I say that all again? Right? We live upon alms. We are daily dependent upon God's mercy for all things. That is not a problem. That, that neediness that we live with is not a problem to be solved. It is an existential truth. The problem is when we start to problem solve that truth. When we take matters into our own hands and try to figure out some way that we can live not being dependent upon God. It was the very first sin you remember, and it's been at the root of all sin since. That man and the woman there in the garden, they problem-solved their dependence by eating the fruit. And the hope was that they could become like God themselves, not needing God. Not needing God, but being able to do life without him. And it's a toxic unreality, and therefore God makes his intentions clear. He means to orchestrate our lives so that we are confronted with the reality. Day after day after day, he confronts us in his grace with the reality that we are not in control of our lives, that we are not sufficient, that the strength for each day does not come from us, so we must not rely upon ourselves but on him. And so the goal, the goal then is not to wiggle your way out of daily dependence on God. The goal is not even that you would learn to come to God for the things you need for each day. There's a deeper lesson even than that, and that is to learn to come to God as the thing you need. 
prosperity preachers are false prophets. God does not promise health and wealth. It's much better than that. He promises himself to you. And his steadfast love is better than life. And nowhere does God say, I will make sure that you have everything that you want. I'll make sure it all goes really great for you and you live a nice, cozy, safe, blessed life. Here's what he says. I will never leave you or forsake you because I am all you need. So the problem is that you'll never know the truth of that. You'll never know that he is, in fact, all you need until he's all you have. That's the only way to learn it. It's the only way to learn that lesson because our hearts are so set against it is for him to graciously bring us to the place where he is truly all we have. He is the only hope we have. He is the only source of joy we have. He, it's only him. He is all we have to drill into our hearts in that moment of sheer brutal honesty that he is, in fact, all we need. You have to learn it by experience. And so in Deuteronomy, God says, I let you hunger. I brought need into your life, and then I fed you. Then I provided for you to teach you that you cannot live without me. Because that is the one thing our hearts want to believe most, that we can. There's an old John Newton hymn where uh, it's, it's, a really, it's basically a, um, a memoir of his own life in him form. And, and it goes like this. He says, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. What a great, what a great desire and what a great prayer. And it goes on, uh, and it's a long hymn. I won't, I won't say the whole thing to you, but he expects that the Lord is going to answer that prayer in a certain way, that God will give him some what he called favored hour where God would do a great work for him and, 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 and make him known and do amazing things in his life. And it doesn't happen that way at all. He goes on and he starts to reflect. He says, yet more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, cast out my feelings, laid me low. And he's pondering this. He's saying, this doesn't make sense. It's not what I expected. And so he says, he cries out, Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue thy worm to death? And here comes the answer. This is the way the Lord replied. I answer prayers for grace and faith. And this is the most famous line. It says, these inward, this is the Lord speaking. He says, these inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may seek thy all in me. Let me say it one more time. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may seek thy all in me. So here's the question. Where is God currently doing that in your life? What schemes for earthly joy, for happiness apart from God, for the celebration of your own and the comfort of feeling like you're sufficient in yourself, what schemes for that kind of joy is he currently breaking? And are you grieving that? Or this morning, could you have a change of perspective that would say, maybe I should be grateful for that. Maybe that's a good work he's doing in my life. And that's what I would hope you could come to see. In the Exodus story, uh, as you go along and read that, there are some who tried to hoard the manna. 
The text, uh, the text does not ascribe a motive, just that they did not listen to the Lord. And it's, hard, it's not hard for me to imagine myself doing the same, uh, and for a number of different reasons. I can think of fear, pride, love of comfort, uh, whatever the case might be, all of them rooted in unbelief. And so I'm very, I would be very tempted. God said, only take what you need for today. If you don't, you know, I'll say, well, I'll take a little bit more just in case for tomorrow. And that's just kind of the way I live my life. I did the math, uh, believe it or not. Today, I am 17,346 days old. Woo woo, right? Can I report to you the Lord is batting a thousand? He is a perfect 17,346 for 17,346 in providing for me. And yet it is not enough for me to trust him for tomorrow. I, on the other hand, I'm O for. I am O for 17,346. And yet there's a part of me, and this is what I want you to see, it's in you two. There's a part of me, despite that record, that still thinks that my life is better off in my hands than it is in his. It makes no sense. It says, they left some parts of the manna until the morning, thinking there would be a little extra should they need it, but when they woke up, it had already rotted. And so if you're not sure, kind of the line of thinking that you should be doing here, if you're not sure where you might still be living in unbelief, where you might be indeed trusting in your own strength and not in his, if you're not sure where that might be, here's my, here's my advice to you. Sniff around and find the stinky parts. The Apostle Paul said, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so sin is not just doing bad things, it is also doing good things in your own strength, putting confidence in your gifts or resources or relying on yourself and not God and making bread for yourself. That, that, that phrase comes from Paul Miller, who's a friend of ours uh, in the person of Jesus study that many of you have been through. There's one lesson where he is walking through all of this and he, he says, here's, here's the way you ought to think about your life. And I would encourage you to maybe write this down and consider this later. But he says, fill in the blank. He says, I'm not going to let my blank drive me to blank. I'm not going to let my hunger of some kind, fill in the blank, drive me to make bread for myself, however you would fill in that blank. So you could, you could do, there's so many ways that you could fill in, those, fill in those gaps. I'm not going to let my fear of financial hardship drive me to kill myself at work. I'm not going to let my need for my kids' love and a good relationship with them drive me to not discipline them when I need to. At the same time, I'm not going to let my uh, desire for my kids' success and for them to be well-adjusted adults drive me to over-discipline them, right? I'm not going to let my need for approval drive me to live my entire life posturing and performing in front of others. I'm not going to let my loneliness or my fear of being alone drive me to get in a rush with my relationship and try to secure a future with the person that I know I can't live without. You see, a thousand different ways. You see? How would you feel I'm not going to let my blank drive me to blank? And you'll be on to how these things might be working in your own heart. You know, it's no coincidence. <clears throat> it's no coincidence that Jesus was tempted to make bread for himself too at the beginning of his ministry. Do you remember 40 days and 40 nights? With no food, the Israelites had bread at least at every meal. He went 40 days and 40 nights with no food. He was absolutely starving. 
And Satan waited until that moment to tempt him. And he came to him and he said, there's a stone. Why don't you turn that stone into bread and feed yourself? There's no need for you to be so hungry. Satan threatened or he tempted him to assume the rebel posture of self-reliance, to take matters into his own hands, to provide for himself with his own power and resources. That's a temptation, not a life goal. That's a temptation, not a life goal. And Jesus, of course, said no, fighting off the enemy with these words, man does not live by bread alone. You see, Jesus knew, even in his hunger, that there was something he needed more than bread. Satan put the choice before him. He could have bread but without God, or he could have God but no bread. Jesus knew the truth from C.S. Lewis that he who has God and everything has no more than he who has God only. And this is the choice. This is the test in Exodus chapter 16. Israel failed. They decided that they would rather have bread in Egypt without God than have bread in the wilderness but with God. Jesus passed the test. He chose to have God with no bread. But what about you? What about me? That's how the scripture would have us contemplate our own lives this morning. But secondly then, in learning the lesson of why we pray for daily bread, you have to also ask, well, where does the confidence, where does the strength, where does the grace to do that, to pray for daily bread and not just make bread for yourself come from? Where do you get the strength to not rely on your own strength? Where does the effort to rest in God's care and love for you and not make it happen on your own come from? Or let me ask it this way again. Um, where do you find the joy and peace and hope to do life through asking and not doing? I've said already, everything that doesn't come from sin, from faith is sin, which means that the sin underneath all other sin is unbelief, and therefore the issue is faith. And faith is believing God, not just believing in God, it's believing Him, it's believing His Word, it's believing His promises. What are some of your favorite promises of God? What are some of your favorite things God says about how he's going to live life with you? I love where he says, I will, I will be with you. Don't be afraid. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I will help you, he says. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Where else does God make promises to you? I, I, in Luke 11, further down, he says, ask and it will be given to you. Do you believe that? Ask and it will be given to you. For what father, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a scorpion instead? And if you're evil and you know how to give good, good gifts to your children, what about God in heaven? I love yesterday we read in Psalm 28. I hope you're reading along with us. Didn't you? Lo- I love the phrase, the Lord is the strength of his people. That's awesome. The Lord is the strength of his people. It's not that they're impressive people on their own. They're not. We're not. The Lord is the strength of his people. That's a promise God makes to you. But, but is that really true, right? That's the thing. Can you really trust him? to be the strength of your life and your portion forever? Can you really trust him to do the things he says? Because that's the issue in sanctification. That's the issue in growing in your relationship with Jesus. Not more effort, but more faith. 17,346 days, which means I have 17,346 reasons to trust him, and I still don't. And that's why I'm anxious and controlling and manipulative and needy and always taking things into my own hands. And you say, oh, surely you're not those things. Oh, surely I am. 
and surely you are too. And the spiritual power to instead simply pray for daily bread, it comes from knowing that Jesus Christ is the bread of life, that he is the daily bread that we pray for. The key to trusting God is to see the way that he has revealed himself in Jesus because that manna there in Exodus chapter 16, we learn as we read throughout the rest of the scriptures that the manna itself pointed to a greater spiritual reality, pointed to Jesus And he makes the connection for us in John chapter 6. He says that manna that miraculously came down from heaven to feed your fathers in the wilderness. He says, that was one thing, but now something infinitely better than manna is here. I am the bread of life. I am the bread that has come down from out of heaven. And if you eat this bread, then you will live forever. It's an obvious claim to his divinity. He's the one who's come down out of heaven. But let's consider, and this is the assurance of pardon passage, just in case you're wondering. So now we've jumped to uh, I, 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 Jesus juke there. You didn't know this was a sermon on John 6 also. But we need to go to John 6 too to understand Exodus 16 in order to understand what Jesus is calling us to in Luke chapter 11. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, what does he mean? Well, he means that the way your body hungers for food, your soul hungers for God. There's a spiritual emptiness that is like a, an empty stomach and you can try to fill it with all kinds of things, but all the other food is like the manna. Do you remember what it said about the manna there? Look at the very last phrase. It said, morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. And that is, that is the way of all things apart from God that we try to fill our stomachs in life with. All the other food besides the food that God gives in Jesus will only leave you. It'll evaporate like mist. It'll only leave you hungrier than you were before. Isn't that the worst? That is like one of my pet peeves. When you eat and you're hungrier after you eat than you were before you ate. That's the most discouraging thing in my life. Anybody else? Like I just ate and I'm hungry. But it's what Jesus is saying here that there is food you can try to feed your soul with. The praise of people, romantic love, an account balance, work success. But it is, all of it, Turkish delight. It's the enchanted food in the Narnia books. The more you eat, the more you crave, and you're never satisfied. And so you just eat more and more, and you crave it more and more, and you're never satisfied. G.K. Chesterton said, every man who walks into a brothel is looking for God. We could say every person scrolling through Amazon is looking for God. And Amazon knows that, by the way. Just look at their advertising. But Jesus says this. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And if you eat of this bread... No more hunger. I mean, Jesus is the bread to satisfy our soul hunger for God so that we can truly begin to enjoy all the other good parts of life without trying to draw our life and joy and peace and hope and all that stuff from them. And he says, if you have this bread of life, you won't need anything else to feel satisfied. If you don't have it, nothing will ever satisfy. And that's the real problem for every single... That is, if you're here, no matter where you are on the spectrum of faith, if you're here and you're not even a Christian, or if you're here and you've been a Christian a long time, that's the issue. The issue that Jesus is, is the the tip of the spear of what Jesus is saying is, if you have the bread of life, you won't need anything else to be satisfied. But if you don't have him, then nothing else will ever satisfy you. Jesus is not a guide to life. He is life. He is God dwelling with us, not just during his earthly ministry, but now even more profoundly in the person of the Holy Spirit. And if you believe 
In me, he says, if you believe in me, you can have your soul's deepest hunger satisfied to know and to commune with God. And that's what we need to know is that the reason it's so hard to trust God is because you don't know him. Not personally anyway, not intimately, not instinctively, not to the degree that he desires for you to. And Jesus said, I am the solution to your soul's hunger. Believe in me. And all of that restlessness and anxiety and fear and manipulation and control that you live with can be gone and you can have Zoe life. Right? The bread of life is the bread of Zoe. Zoe life, not just bios life, not just breathing in and breathing out and barely making it through the day. Eternal life, abundant life, adventurous life with God. Jesus said, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Believe in me, abide in me, he says, and I will show the Father to you. I will make known the Father to your soul. You can know him like I know him. You can be loved and you can love him just like me because I'm the bread of life. But bread of life also is an image that describes how Jesus makes all of this possible because it says in John 6, 51, the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And that is a reference to his death, his death for your life, his death for your life, the punishment for our sin, the punishment for the rebel posture of self-reliance is death and hell. And yet here's what the Christian gospel says, that Jesus died in our place. His body was broken. His body was torn apart the way you tear apart the bread at Carabas before you eat it and dip it in that yummy, yummy stuff they give you. His body, torn apart. He died in our place and suffered the horror of hell for us. He took the curse that we deserve, eternal alienation from God, to give us the standing with God, the access to God, the smile of God that only he deserves, and it's all grace. Which means there's no connection between God's disposition towards you if your faith is in Jesus and your performance, good or bad. And there's no highs and lows to his love. It's fixed, constant, unchanging. Your circumstances might change. God's love is unchanging. And here's how the Apostle Paul would argue against your unbelief. By latching on that idea, and here's how he reasoned. Here's how Paul would reason this truth into your soul so that you could learn to pray this prayer that Jesus is teaching. He says, if God has already met your greatest need in Jesus, if he has already given his greatest treasure, his only son for you, if, in fact, in sending Jesus into the world, he has emptied the treasury of heaven to provide for you, then doesn't it stand to reason that he will also graciously give you everything else with him? That's Romans 8, 32. And Romans 8, of course, is this beautiful reflection on how securely and how surely we are loved by God despite the sufferings we go through, despite those big rocks we have to push from time to time. It says nothing can separate us from God's love, nothing. And the, the reason, see, the reason you freak out and start taking things into your own hand when, when there's a genuine problem, if it's a big enough problem and there's nothing you can do, you, you take it into your own hands or if it's big enough and there's nothing you can do, then, then the, way you just, the way you maintain control is you just lose sleep and worry about it. So whether you take it in your own hands or it's too big for you to do that so you lose sleep and worry about it, the reason for all of that is because there's still a whisper in your soul that says, I know, I know, God is a perfect 17,346 for 17,346, but, I mean, see, this time, and here's what your soul starts to do, that condemning heart, it says, oh, 
this time. This is it. This is the time. The 17,347th time. This is when my sin's finally going to catch up with me. This is when he's finally going to get tired of me. He's got to be getting tired, right, of doing all of that. Surely, there's got to be some end to his love. This is probably, this is the, this is the one thing that's going to slip through the cracks. And Paul says, no, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate you from his love, not height, nor depth, nor principality, nor power, nor things to come, nor future, none, none of those things. At the end of Exodus chapter 16, Moses commanded the Israelites to take some of that manna and to put it in a jar and to carry it around with them to be kept throughout all the generations as a memorial, as a remembrance. And the lesson there is important too that the faith to believe God for today and for tomorrow and for the day after and for all of the days, the faith to believe God comes from remembering his faithfulness and love yesterday and the day before that and the day before that and all of those days as well. At the root of every sin is an act of gospel forgetfulness. And so the power for obedience is just gospel remembrance. If I'm afraid, and that's why I'm clutching or that's why I'm holding on so tightly to things, if I'm afraid, I'm forgetting the gospel. I'm forgetting God's grace in Jesus. I'm forgetting that all of life is grace and that he graciously gives us all things along with him. But if I'm proud... If I'm self-reliant and I'm manipulative and I'm puppet mastering all the other people in my life, then I'm forgetting the gospel. I'm forgetting that God loves sinners, that he has love for the weak and the undeserving. And that's important because the issue in those times where I can feel my heart going off the rails like that, the issue is not a lack of effort. It's a lack of faith. And that's where you have to begin to repent, not just for whatever's on the surface of your life, not for that surface thing you're dealing with, but also for whatever's wrong underneath for the wrong believing that is behind that behavior and you find where you're forgetting the gospel and then you remember and then you live from that truth and that's the way spiritual change starts to happen so faith is described here as eating and drinking in john 6 let me ask a question how often do you eat and drink to sustain your physical strength if you're a normal human being, you have to do that in the morning and then again sometime during the middle of the day and then probably at night too and then throughout the day as well. And so how often do you have to believe? You have to believe in the morning and then again at midday and then again in the evening and lots of in between too. And so you need habits to help you. And one of those habits is daily prayer. Daily prayer for daily bread. So here's the thing. Do you remember that at the beginning that I asked that question about the big rock that you're trying to move, that big thing that's there every day? Well, here's the thing. What if every time you felt that ache in your soul, instead of worrying, instead of getting angry, or instead of feeling guilty, or instead of strategizing a solution and worrying and fretting yourself until you can come up with some way you're going to move forward, what if whenever you felt that ache, instead you just turned that ache into a prayer? I have good news and bad news. You want the bad news first, right? The bad news is I don't think that doing that, I don't think there's any promise that doing that is going to speed up the timing of that prayer being answered. The frequency of our prayers don't change the outcomes necessarily. You want the good news? They do change us.
And that is, in my professional experience, and in my personal experience, an important part of the way God answers our prayers. Often, often God changes things by first changing us. It's an important thing. There's an ancient hymn, uh, circa 1050 or so, attributed to Bernard of Clairvaux that captures this well. And I love it so much because it describes uh, the way faith works. Uh, and you'll, when I read it in just a minute, that, that you learn to satisfy your heart with Jesus. And then as you do so, you find your capacity for joy and for satisfaction not diminishing, but actually increasing. It's the very opposite of Turkish delight. You, you learn to satisfy your heart in Jesus, which only increases your joy and desire for more and more joy and satisfaction in him. And that is exactly how sin's power dies. So listen to these words and make them your prayer. Where it says, Jesus... Thou joy of loving hearts, thou fount of life, thou light of men, from the best bliss that earth departs, we turn unfilled to thee again. We taste thee, O thou living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee, the fountainhead, and thirst our souls from thee to fill. That is the movement of faith. Uh, May it be so for us as we learn to pray, as Jesus taught us here. Give us each day our daily bread. Would you pray with me? Let's do that right now in this moment. So, Father, there are hundreds of people in this room, and so hundreds, hundreds of big rocks that are being worried over and wondered over, and we're exhausting ourselves trying to push against uh, these things, and so as as true as it is of every individual here that there is an individualized need in every one of us in this moment, we give you thanks that you are a personal God who meets every single one of us at that place of need, a kid that's sick or that we're worried about or um, a financial problem that we need to get fixed or we're without work or we're transitioning job. I mean, I don't know, whatever it might be, but we, we come to you and instead of worrying, at least for this moment, at this, at this just snapshot moment of time, instead of worrying, instead of grasping, instead of controlling, instead of manipulating, we just say, here I am with open hands and we ask today for you to do something. And then we're gonna get up tomorrow and ask for you to do something else. And we turn those things over into prayer, knowing, knowing that there is bread from heaven that we can eat, that can take away all of our obsessive need for other things to fill our souls with. And there is the promise that at the end of our life, the joy we're looking for, the hope we're looking for, the finished work, the outcomes, the completion that we're looking for is something we may never experience in this life, but what awaits us in heaven is a feast where it won't just be bread. It will be Thanksgiving dinner, every meal, every day, forever. And in the hope of that future joy, would you sustain us as we continue to go throughout this wilderness world, trusting in you and not in ourselves. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That's one of my favorites. Uh, The church uh, throughout its history has been defiantly singing songs like that to say, uh, that's a song that says, that's just irrelevant of my personal experience. This is what I know my future holds, right? 
Uh, and here's the thing. There is no promise of a feast in this life, there, but there is a promise of a feast in the life to come. And the more you set your heart's hope on that, the more you can content yourself with the daily bread he provides from here to there, right? It may be for the rest of our lives, bread, every meal. But it's okay because there's a feast that's coming. You, you see that? And that's the promise. The promise Jesus makes is not that he's going to fill your week with feasting. He's going to fill your week this week with everything you need because he promises to go with you as you go. But remember, he's taking us. If your faith is in Jesus, every single one of us is taking us to that ultimate feast at the end of time, uh, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so that is our hope. And with that hope, receive this word of benediction and go uh, trusting in Himself, in him and not in yourself because then, uh, then all of life will become a joy. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.